Life is full of challenges. With an unpredictable economy and just as surprising life changes, you need to be prepared to weather any storm. Elder Law and Estate Planning Attorney Kevin Tharp and Financial Advisor Gary Anderson are available to help you with life's difficult decisions. This is Truth in Planning. Joint ownership. It's not all that it seems to be. I'm Kevin Tharp, Elder Law and Estate Planning Attorney. And I'm Gary Anderson, Financial Advisor, Anderson Advisors. Gary, I know you've seen in in car mirrors, uh, the objects seem closer than they actually appear to be. Yes. Well, I like to use that analogy for talking about joint ownership. Joint ownership is not all that it seems to be. And so one of the things I found in my years of experience as an elder law and estate planning attorney is that joint ownership is a very convenient thing. I found it. It, it seems to be a matter of convenience, um, very convenient, especially with married couples. It's a very traditional thing uh, for married couples to own uh, everything they can own together. Uh, things like your home, uh, things like banking accounts and investment accounts. Now, there's certain types of assets that you know in your industry that you can't join uh, own jointly, regardless of how convenient uh, or inconvenient it may be. And that are things like retirement accounts. You can't own an IRA joint with your spouse. You can't own a 401k joint with your spouse. Um, But most other assets, even life insurance, can be jointly owned. I know there's a form of life insurance called second to die that a lot of people, uh, especially back in the day when the estate tax limit was so low, there were a lot of married couples that owned things jointly. And so you see that a lot particularly on bank accounts, you see joint ownership, you see a home purchased joint with right of survivorship. I would uh, dare to say that just about every closing attorney, when a married couple purchases a home, uh, they say, well, you need to put it in both names. Now, joint ownership, a lot of times uh, it's done for convenience, uh, but it's also uh, a way for people to uh, do estate planning. Uh, I've heard uh a well-known estate planning attorney speak at a conference one time, and he said joint ownership is the poor man's estate planning uh, because you can own everything joint. You basically have your plan built in. You know that automatically when you own something joint, especially with your spouse, in most cases it's automatically going to pass to them. And so there's this assumption out there that, and I've had many married couples that uh, have attended seminars uh, that I've done and spoke to groups, and they said, oh, we don't need to do any state planning. My wife and I, my husband and I, we own everything together. Mm. So let's talk about joint ownership, and we know that it's a very popular form of titling. We know that if you've listened to this show at least once, you know that you've heard me say that titling will trump whatever your document says. And so many times what I found about joint ownership is married couples, first of all, when they own things jointly, Gary, they negate any estate planning documents they have. I know a lot of uh, attorneys over the years that their law firm did estate planning and at the same time their law firms also did real estate closings. And so the couple would, a married couple would come in, they'd purchase a home And the real estate attorney would say, okay, now how do you want to title your home? And they'd say, well, we want to title it joint. And then they turn around and say, okay, now you need to, you just made a big life purchase. You need to make sure you have a will to take care of that. And so they draw up a will. They pay the lawyer a fee for a will. And that will says, when I die, I give everything to my spouse. 
Well, the way they just titled that home joint, especially joint with right of survivorship, that automatically negates the will. Because there is a bedrock legal principle in the state planning, Gary, and that is when title says one thing and document says another thing, title always wins. Title will dictate what happens to that house, not what your document says. Yet so many times, including on this radio show or radio station, people uh, speak on other shows. They speak, uh, they do ads and they're lawyers and they talk about estate planning and they talk about documents, 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 and they never talk about titling. And most people. Most married couples, I would venture to say, probably 99% of them, their title and documents are not coordinated together. They think they have everything done, but they're not coordinated together. They think they have everything done because they have a document, yet title dictates differently. So if I have a will that says when I die, I leave everything to Missy, and Missy and I own everything jointly, and I die... Based on how things are titled, that's going to determine who gets it. In this case, it would be Missy. And it negates my document. So just make sure that if you're going to spend money with a lawyer on a document, make sure they're talking with you about how things are titled. Take a look at it yourself. Take a look at your bank statement. If you have a will that says, I leave everything to my spouse, take a look at your bank statement. And if your bank statement is joint, then you've just negated the will. So before you pay money for a document, check the title. And joint ownership is a very common form of titling. The problem with it, and that's the first problem with it, it can negate your estate planning documents. You're listening to Truth in Planning. I'm Gary Anderson, financial advisor, Anderson Advisors, and I'm here with my co-host, Kevin Tharp, estate planning and elder law attorney. And Kevin, what you're saying here is, Joint ownership is not an ideal estate plan. It's not all that it seems to be, yet that is one of the most common forms of titling with married couples especially. Now, here's another problem with joint ownership, Gary. And I see this a lot, and it's very common as people get older, okay, they want to make sure for convenience, if I get sick and I can't manage my affairs, they want to title things joint with their children, We see this especially with banking accounts. I want to title my bank account. I'm going to go ahead and put my son or daughter's name on my bank account so they can access it when something happens to me. Well, here's the problem with joint ownership. Number one, you're going to negate your legal document. We know that already. But here's the other thing about joint ownership. It doesn't take into account the condition of the surviving owner. So let's say that I... Uh, on a joint account, bank account with my wife, and I pass away first, that bank account goes to my wife. Now, presume that my wife survives me, but she's incapacitated, God forbid, in a nursing home, like what would have happened with my parent. what happened with my parents. Does joint ownership, is that a great way to own it in that circumstance? No, because the bank is going to give the surviving joint owner. They're going to give your surviving spouse that bank account and every dime in it, regardless of the fact that they're incapacitated in a nursing home. It doesn't matter to the bank because the law of title says joint ownership will automatically pass that account to your surviving spouse. Here's another thing about joint ownership, and this is really particular in Georgia. It's not automatic. 
when it comes to real estate, you have to specifically title your deed and say in your deed, joint ownership with right of survivorship. If you don't, then the surviving spouse is going to have to go through probate. And yet these same lawyers who are talking about, well, probate's no big deal. You just need a will are on the radio talking about the last thing you want to do as a surviving spouse is go through probate when you die. So what's the difference between going through probate and not going through probate? How is it titled? And joint ownership does not guarantee probate avoidance. It is not the form of titling that will guarantee avoiding probate, especially when it comes to real estate. It won't take into account the condition of the surviving owner. It automatically goes to that person. If you add your children's name as a joint owner to your bank account, you lose asset protection. If I put my daughter's name on my bank account and my daughter gets a divorce, can her divorcing spouse get to my bank account? Yes. So joint ownership, although it may be convenient, although it may be a very popular and well-understood form of titling, it's not all that it seems to be. Now, the good news is there is a form of titling that will give you the convenience of being like it's titled joint. In other words, a married couple both can have access uh, to the uh, to the asset, and that is title it in a revocable living trust. Because the owners of the revocable living trust are husband and wife. The co-trustees of the revocable living trust are husband and wife, and then they name their adult children as backup trustees, giving them access when something happens to you. And it's the best form of titling because your revocable trust will take into account the condition of your surviving spouse. So, Kevin, if I want to know about proper forms of title, how do I get in touch with you? Gary, the best way is through my website, kevintharp.com. Avoiding common IRA mistakes. Coming up next. Avoiding costly IRA mistakes. I'm Gary Anderson, financial advisor, Anderson Advisors. And I'm Kevin Tharp, elder law and estate planning attorney. Kevin, the IRA or 401k, that's usually the beginning of an IRA. Typically people work their working years and have IRAs, 403Bs, 457, thrift savings plans. Those are all tax qualified plans. And people typically will roll those into an IRA. And today, especially if you're 55 years old or older, I want to go through some of the common errors that people make and how to avoid these errors when it comes to IRAs, because this can be some very expensive mistakes. These are things that you typically might not ever even get over in your lifetime because you may be paying too much in taxes, a lot of different consequences to the way you treat an IRA. So we want to make sure that you understand what these errors are, what these mistakes can be, so you can avoid them. But yes, if you're 55 years old or older, then it's a good time to at least start listening to this because you probably have some idea that you're going to be retiring at some point in time. It may be, you may be 65, you may be 70, but you've got to start thinking about this now. So we need to start getting prepared for having this IRA and managing it in a way that's going to benefit you the most. And that entails avoiding mistakes. And so this is what we want to talk about really for the next two weeks, because we've got several here that I want to 
elaborate on a little bit so people can kind of understand the consequences of making some of these mistakes. One thing that we find out with 401ks and things like 457s and things like that, all tax qualified plans for your from your employer is that you've accumulated all these funds in these plans over the years. And most people, that's their biggest savings account. That's the biggest amount of money they've saved. And um, they got benefits for that. You know, they they got they were able to make tax deductions, get tax deductions for what they contributed into these plans. So that was great. That was a wonderful thing to be able to do because it helped you during your earning years to avoid paying taxes then. But at some point in time, you're going to be paying taxes on an IRA. And we want to, number one, make sure your taxes are something that can be minimized. We want to, you're going to pay taxes on it no matter what, but paying taxes on it in certain ways are more beneficial to you than others. So I want to get into the mistakes that people typically make. And to me, the number one mistake is failing to roll over an IRA. And you think, well, Gary, what do you mean roll over an IRA? At some point in time, like I was saying, you're going to retire. And you have this 401k. You might have several, as a matter of fact, and I'll get into a little bit more of that in here in a second. But you may have several 401ks because you worked at several different places. And one thing that we have found over the years is if you leave your money in your 401k after you retire, it typically doesn't work out as well for you uh, as opposed to moving your 401k into your individual retirement account, your IRA. This works better because you have more flexibility with it, typically have more investment options, you have more control over your investments, and uh, usually you, you, you do better with that. You just wind up with a, a better return on your money when you move these things to the IRA. That's typical. Sometimes 401ks can be very good and you want to keep them, but for the most part, Having that 401k after you retire with the company that you used to be with is really not the way you want to do things. What we also run into nowadays is you can have a couple who literally have have worked five or six jobs, sometimes five or six jobs each in their working career. People move around a lot more than they used to. Well, these jobs, they had 401ks with these jobs, and a lot of times, from an employer 20, 25 years ago that you were accumulating money in the 401k, you could have very well forgotten it was even there. Well, sometimes a conversation like this reminds you that it's there, but you have all these different 401ks out there, and the more ideal situation is even now while you're still working, go back and get those old 401ks and move them, move them into your own IRA consolidate that makes it more simple for you and also you're going to get a better return on your investment when you're able to pull several of those counts together it's much more efficient for you listening to truth and planning today and i'm with my co-host gary anderson of anderson advisors and he's talking about some very common ira planning mistakes and one of them he specifically mentioned is failure to roll over your retirement account uh 401k from uh, your current or previous employer. And that drew a question to my mind, Gary. When can you roll over your 401k into an IRA? That is a good question, Kevin. Typically, you can't do it until you're 59 and a half or over. 
a lot of times 401k plans, depending on the employer and depending on their plan, um, employers, you, you really won't be able to move the thing until you actually are retired or have left that job, one or the other. So it depends on the employer. The standard is 59 and a half. You can a lot of times start taking money from your 401k and moving it into an IRA. But a lot of employers actually want you to keep it until you leave work, till you either go to another job or you retire from that job. But that is a good question. And, Kevin, that kind of leads me to mistake, the second mistake I want to talk about, and that's choosing the wrong rollover transfer method. And I can't tell you how many people that I've seen over the years have made this mistake. you got two ways. You have two ways to roll over an I, a 401K to an IRA. The first is a direct transfer. The second is owner taking receipt of the funds. They just send you the money. The direct transfer is the more ideal way to do it because it's going from one custodian. Your 401K goes from one custodian, whomever the custodian is for your 401K at your job, over to your individual retirement account, which will be another custodian. Could be somebody like Fidelity, could be Vanguard, could be Schwab, any of those these investment companies. You're moving it over there. And so what you're doing with that is moving it from one trans one custodian to the other, and it makes it a non-taxable event when you roll it from one custodian to the other, a direct rollover. The advantage to that is you don't have to think about it. Because a lot of times when you start thinking about things like this too much, it can wind up kind of being a mess. And we don't want a mess in this particular instance because it can cost you a lot of money in taxes if you make the wrong choice. Now, you can have a check sent to you. You can have that done. And um, let's say that your your employer's plan allows you just to take some some plans. That's the only way you do it. They say, no, we won't send a check to Fidelity. We won't send the funds there. We're going to send them directly to you, Mr. Tharp. And then you can take that, that uh, check and deposit it into your IRA. There are ways to code that, though. You don't want a check just made out to you because... Heaven forbid, if something happens and you can't get that thing rolled over within that 60-day time period that you're allowed, then you're going to pay all the taxes on that money all at one time, and you're going to cost yourself a whale of a, a lot of money for the rest of your life, actually, because that's money that will never be accumulating for you again. And you're paying so much in taxes, it could raise you into different tax brackets, too. If you get a check, you don't roll it over within 60 days you're going to have to pay taxes on it. Some employers will, if you decide to take the, a check yourself directly, some employers will actually withhold federal taxes on that. They could withhold 15, 10, 20 percent, whatever it is. They withhold those taxes, and then if you do decide to roll this into 60, within a 60-day rollover, then you have to use money outside of that IRA, that 401K, to to offset the taxes you paid for it before. So if I'm moving a hundred thousand dollars and I'm withhold and they withhold twenty thousand dollars, then I've got to make up that twenty thousand dollars from other funds to do the sixty day rollover. It's gotta be a dollar for dollar amount. Gary, I know our listeners are interested in this because just about every one of our listeners has either a four oh one K or an IRA or both. Mm -hmm. And they want to avoid making these planning mistakes. How can they do that? Kevin, 
If they'd like to come in and talk to us, we'll be glad to help help you with that. You can call us at 888-371-2847, Anderson Advisors. In the next segment, we're going to talk about beneficiary designations. It's exactly what it says it is. Exactly what it says it is. I'm Kevin Tharp, Elder Law and Estate Planning Attorney. And I'm Gary Anderson, Financial Advisor, Anderson Advisors. Gary, you've been talking about, uh, and we'll be talking about on the next several shows, about IRAs and IRA planning mistakes. And IRAs are one of those type of assets. And a lot of financial assets are trending now towards naming beneficiaries. They have different names for it. They call it uh, payable on death or transfer on death. But regardless of what you call it, payable on death, transfer on death, it is a beneficiary designation. Life insurance policies have traditionally been that one type of asset over the decades that allow you to name a beneficiary. It's really not so much with life insurance about who the owner is. The two most important parties are the insured, that's who has to die before the insurance company pays money, and who the beneficiaries are, because that changes everything on who gets that life insurance. And now, with financial products like IRAs or 401ks, you can name a beneficiary on that. And when a person dies, it doesn't matter how it was invested. It doesn't matter whether the market's up or down or sideways. It doesn't matter. What matters to that insurance company is one thing. Who is the beneficiary? Because that is a form of titling that will dictate who gets that specific asset. And for years, bank accounts were kind of like real estate in that you couldn't name a beneficiary on a bank account. You just had to title it. Uh, you know, title it joint with your spouse, which we talked about in the previous show, may not be the best form of titling or title it in the name of a trust. But now bank accounts seem to be getting into the game of beneficiary designation. They allow you to name a beneficiary, even on regular checking accounts. You can do a payable on death or a transfer on death. Well, why is that important? Because it can, it means everything when you die. Who the beneficiary is on things from life insurance policies to IRAs to annuities to uh, financial accounts, banking accounts, brokerage accounts, it's who is the beneficiary? Who are you going to name as a beneficiary? And I can tell you one thing that it's going to outcome. It's going to affect your documents. Make sure that if you choose a will, Make sure you're asking the lawyer, you're paying money to do that will. Ask them, how is this will going to impact the beneficiary on my IRA or 401k or my life insurance or my brokerage account? 
Mr. Lawyer, Miss Lawyer, that's drafting the will. Talk to my financial guy. Talk to the person at the bank. And y'all talk together. And because my financial guy is telling me I can name a beneficiary on my IRA. My person at the bank is saying I can do a payable on death on my bank account. So y'all need to talk together to tell me how this is going to impact this document I'm paying you money for. Because what I can tell you, I know what the answer is going to be. You can't coordinate the two together. When you choose a document called a will, the will is trumped by who your beneficiary is. It's who your beneficiary is that will determine who gets the asset, not your will. Again, go back to my example. You see this very common in, with married couples. The husband has a 401k, the wife has a life insurance policy, and they name each other as beneficiary. And then they go get their will updated, maybe because their children have grown and or whatever, there's some family event. So they go to their lawyer and they say, we need to get our will updated. So they update their document called a will, and there's never any discussion or talk about who the beneficiary of your assets are. So the people go along their way thinking they have a plan and they find out that when they die, they didn't need that will at all because my spouse is going to get my IRA. Why? Because I named her as a beneficiary. My kids are going to get the IRA because I named them as a contingent beneficiary. Beneficiary designation is a form of titling that controls many of the assets and what happens to those assets that we own when we die. You're listening to Truth in Planning. I'm Gary Anderson, financial advisor, and my co-host, Kevin Tharp, estate planning and elder law attorney, today is giving us information and discussing the right way to establish your beneficiaries. And, Kevin, this is something that we talk about a lot. We have conversations about this all the time, about who beneficiaries should be and or what a beneficiary should be for people's accounts. And we have these discussions mainly because... People are just stay confused on this, and I think it's because of all these conflicting inform this information. conflicting information they get. Gary, one of the most common beneficiaries we recommend is your revocable living trust. But here's what we often hear: they go back to their financial person, they go back to the bank, and they tell the bank, "Well, Mister Tharp's recommending that we change the beneficiary uh, on our to our trust." And here's typically what the financial advisor, CPA, or others that they're seeking estate planning advice from. You don't need a trust. You have beneficiaries. Your spouse, your children, your grandchildren are going to get that asset, and they're going to get it outside of probate. You don't need a trust for that. And so they think, okay, that makes sense, so I don't need a trust. So why do we recommend a trust as the beneficiary? Now, first of all, it's a revocable living trust, so it changes nothing, okay? Changes nothing as far as you're concerned. You don't give up ownership because you name a beneficiary, including naming a trust as beneficiary. So it doesn't impact your taxes. It doesn't impact your beneficiary's taxes. Every asset you leave a person, with the exception of one, there's no taxes on it. So if you leave a life insurance policy to somebody, okay, whether it's through, including through a trust, they don't pay tax on life insurance just because they get it through a trust. 
the only asset you can name you can name a beneficiary and it has tax consequences is your IRA your kids are going to pay income tax on that IRA N- nothing changes and that includes if your kids get it through a trust your spouse is not going to pay taxes on getting your IRA. They can actually roll theirs over, and I think you're going to talk about that in the next segment. They actually can roll it over into theirs tax-free. They have to start taking money out, so it doesn't change the taxes to the spouse. So why make the trust the beneficiary? If it doesn't change who gets it, if it doesn't change the fact that they're going to get it outside of probate, if it doesn't change the fact of uh, how they're going to get it, then why do that? Asset protection. When you get things through a trust, whether it's IRA proceeds, life insurance proceeds, a brokerage account, or a bank account, when you get it through the through a trust, the trust adds a layer of protection to those assets you're giving your spouse or your children because they get it through a trust. See, at one point in time, my dad had my mother as the beneficiary of his IRA, and he had my brothers and I as the contingent beneficiaries. Well, what would happen if my dad had died first, my mother survives him, and she's in a nursing home? She's on Medicaid. She's completely incapacitated. And she's the named beneficiary on his retirement account and his life insurance policy. She's the named beneficiary on his brokerage account. They're giving my mother that money regardless of her condition. But get it to her through a trust, and the trust takes that into account and protects them. Same thing with the children. If your children survive you, but they're in the middle of a divorce, when they get things through a trust, that IRA money, that life insurance money, all of it is protected. So the best beneficiary designation is a revocable living trust. And we can show you how to do that without you giving up ownership, without changing anything to anybody. Kevin, I can't think of anything more impactful than beneficiary designations. Why don't you give people the information so you can get they can have a conversation with them? Gary, the best way is through my website, Kevin Tharp, T-H-A-R-P-E dot com. You have a friend in the IRA business. Coming up next. IRA and your favorite uncle. I'm Gary Anderson, financial advisor, Anderson Advisors. And I'm Kevin Tharp, elder law and estate planning attorney. Gary, my great nephews call me greater uncle Kevin. See, I'm not great uncle Kevin. I'm greater uncle Kevin because I can never, there can never be an uncle greater than uncle Kevin. So I'm greater uncle Kevin. So I would be that favorite uncle you're going to talk about. Well, right? your indoctrination has worked really well. With well, well they're, they're at this point, not even turned two and three years old. So we're working <laughs> early in the game for it. And you just keep on, keep on. That's right. Well, and Kevin, that's good. That's a good example right there of, of, of indoctrination, I guess, because we've all been indoctrinated that we have a very important uncle that's kind of a partner with us in this IRA business. And uh, this uncle is your Uncle Sam, your greater Uncle Sam. 
He's actually greater than you, Kevin, for all respect. But this is one thing you always have to remember is you're going to owe taxes on that 401k that you've been accumulating all those years. You're going to owe taxes on that when you start to use the money. You never paid taxes on the money before. You got tax deductions for contributing to that account, which was even better because you needed that. You were raising kids. You could save a little bit in taxes here and there. And so that made sense to you. Let's say both you and your spouse both were contributing this way. But what you did when you opened that 401k, just like you do when you have an IRA, because one day you'll transfer this to an IRA, you just made a deal with Uncle Sam. You made a deal with the IRS that says, okay, you're going to give me these nice breaks while I'm contributing to this IRA, right? Yes, sir, we'll let you do that. But we also will expect you to pay us back something when you start using that money, that being the tax, the taxes that you owe on it. Now, what taxes do I owe on my IRA? Well, I owe taxes on every single bit that I take out. And you're going to be taking money out of that IRA whether you want to or not at some point because of something I'll cover probably next week will be the required minimum distribution. But this is something that we have to be aware of. Well, why do you need to be aware of it? Gary, I've got a million dollars in my 401k, maybe even over a million right now. And I've, I've pretty much made good decisions all these years when I, con- when I accumulated this money, and now I'm ready to retire. I'm ready to do some other things that I wanted to do all my life but didn't have a chance to do it. That's great, Kevin. That's great. You got all this big IRA, but just remember one thing. When that money goes from your 401k, let's say that million dollars is in this 401k because you did a wonderful job of saving and accumulating, you move that to your IRA, well, we do have to remember that eh, if you just if you actually just take the money outright for one thing, that's something that people do from time to time, you're going to owe on this million dollars eh, probably $200,000. You know, in a 20% tax bracket, that's what you're eventually going to owe on this IRA that you have when you start taking money out. Now, you'll probably take it out over time, hopefully. You don't take it out all at once because that's always an error, a mistake, like we mentioned before. But you owe the government this money. And so keep that in mind when you think you've got that million dollars because really you probably only have mm, 800000 to deal with instead of a million. So, okay, well, so I know somebody probably out there saying, well, what I need to do then is work a few more years longer to make a 1200000 so I'll have the money for taxes. Well, that's great, but you're still going to have even more taxes to pay when you start using that money. So keep that in mind. Never lose track of the fact. And people, Kevin, all the time forget about it. I'm amazed because they've got this big money sitting there and they're ready to retire. And you remind them about, the uncle, their great, great uncle, greater uncle, as you say, because the uncle wants his money too. And he's been waiting a long time for it. He was very patient, but now he's ready to collect when you have that IRA and you start taking money out of it. So this involves planning. We've talked a good bit on this show about tax planning. This is where it's very important because you can save yourself a lot of money in taxes When you take it out over a period of time and you do it judiciously versus taking a lot of money out at one time and costing yourself too much in taxes. 
We're talking about IRAs equal IRS today on Truth and Planning, and I'm talking with my fun- my co-host, financial advisor, Gary Anderson of Anderson Advisors. And Gary, sometimes that great uncle is not necessarily the favorite uncle. It's just that uncle that always seems to show up. You know, you spread the word around in family that we're not going to have Thanksgiving dinner on Thanksgiving Day. We're going to have it the day after. And somehow or another, he shows up. He gets the <laughs> word, and they show up. It's it, so it's kind of like the IRS. They always seem to be there. Well, yeah, they're going to show up. They're going to show up when you owe them that money. They're going to be there for you. They're going to take have their hand out to help you out with that a little bit. And they love to RSVP well in advance on a regular basis, too, and send right? And thank you notes when you do pay your taxes and things like that. It's just, a, you know, it's a great relationship. It really is. So another mistake, and it falls right in line with what the uncle can do and can't do. Well, what the uncle has done, though, for us we have this gift, Kevin. It's called a Roth IRA. This is a wonderful gift to have. Why? Because it's not taxed like that traditional IRA, that traditional 401k. It's not taxed the same way. As a matter of fact, it's not taxed at all. Once you accumulate these funds in your Roth, and let's say it grows over the years, you've contributed, you've accumulated You've done remarkably well with all this money. You have that maybe million dollars or so in your 401k. Well, there is a way to make sure you don't pay taxes on any of that money again, but you have to pay taxes at some point, and you might have to take them, pay them sooner rather than later by converting to a Roth IRA. A Roth IRA, once you move money from your traditional to that Roth, you're never taxed again on any of the accumulation or the principal that you had in it, and so you get that money tax-free, and you spend that money tax-free over time. But you do have to remember this. There is a caveat. The uncle still wants his money. And what I don't suggest doing is taking that million-dollar 401K, let's say you converted it to the IRA, I don't suggest you converting that million dollars all at one time to a Roth. Because you're going to get that big tax surprise we just talked about, you're really going to get it because you're going to, you're going to you're going to pay at least twenty percent, maybe even more, most likely, because you've taken yourself, made, you've created all this taxable income that you never had before, and that really can throw a lot of things out of balance because now you're having to pay a huge amount of taxes all at once, and naturally. That's the the highest form of taxes you can possibly pay is to take a IRA and cash it out or move it to a Roth in full when you've got that much money involved. And so let's be very careful about when to convert to a Roth, how you're going to convert to a Roth, and make sure you do it the right way. The best way to convert to a Roth, if you need to or if you want to, is over time taking certain amounts of money incrementally every year, paying the taxes on that little bit of money that you're taking out. I say a little bit. It could be still a lot of money. But paying taxes then because it doesn't impact your overall tax bill so much when you do that. So that's something to think about is making sure that you do it the right way. And this is something we have conversations with people all the time, with people all the time. And it's good to be able to have that conversation. And we do invite people to do that anytime you'd like to. And then when you have converted to the Roth the right way, you're able to enjoy the tax advantages of the Roth, probably still in conjunction with the taxable advantages or disadvantages of the traditional, 
but it's less so because you're balancing some of that with a Roth now. So keep that in mind. And then a lot of times people don't understand, like you're talking about, and this is another mistake, beneficiary designations. And the one thing I can say about that, Kevin, we and I spend a lot of time talking about beneficiaries, and you want to make sure that you have your beneficiary designations up to date. Check with those old 401k plans. Guarantee you there could be an ex-spouse that could still be a beneficiary of one of those 401ks you had back there, and you haven't thought about it in 20 years, and you need to think about it now. It's a great time to pull all those 401ks from previous employers together and to, to really make sure that you've got the right beneficiaries on Gary, how can our listeners take that first step and make sure they get this right? Kevin, they can call us at Anderson Advisors, 888-371-2847. Investment advisory services are offered through Anderson Advisors, a registered investment advisory firm. Anderson Advisors is an independent financial services firm that helps people create retirement strategies using a variety of insurance and investment products. Investments involves risk, including the potential for loss of principal. Past performance does not guarantee future results. Any reference to protection, safety, and lifetime income generally refers to fixed insurance products, never securities or investments. Insurance guarantees are backed by the strength and paying capabilities of the insurance carrier. This show is intended for informational and educational purposes only and should not be construed as investment advice. You should consult with a financial advisor to help determine the best options for your particular circumstances. No statement made during this show shall constitute tax or legal advice. Our firm is not endorsed by the United States government or any governmental agency. The information and opinions construed herein presented by third parties have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable. Completeness cannot be guaranteed. Neither Gary Anderson or Anderson Advisors is affiliated with attorney J. Kevin Tharp or any guests on this show.